So and we far away uh, places like Gastonia. That's it. <laughs> that's right. So we are uh, we are live now, and uh, everybody can hear Eva. Today's the forty second. It's the forty second day of the uh, Omer. Six weeks of you. So uh, a week from today is the 49th day, and the scripture says the next day is a festival, Shavuot. So uh, that's exciting. The Ascension was a couple of days ago. That's right. That's right. Anniversary. Two days ago. And Bakuchotai uh, and Bahar combined this year because it's not a leap year. And I don't think there's anything else to talk about, is there? Let's let Joshua talk. <laughs> That's it. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. I won't say your name so people, you know, don't send you mail and like, you know, why are you doing this? Um, that's great. And anybody, anything else? Did I miss anything? We're good? We've got the Martins in Korea. If you're not following them on Instagram, it's amazing. What do um, I need to do? Cocologists. Cocologists, yeah. And they're back in uh, Seoul. It's in Seoul. Yeah, they're back in Seoul for the, uh, for the Shabbos. And then... Uh, Spent the week visiting the different now, I think adopted they, children's you get one, one town, right? One, okay. So this next week they'll be visiting the second home. We saw part of their labors. The three people came back from Korea the hospital. That's right. Thank Wonderful. You, Thank you, the Martins, yes. for being there. And I hope it wasn't a trade. It was Scott. It was probably Scott. <laughs> that voice. But they have, uh, they have four adopted kids um, represented by three different cities, not four. So I think they visited two cities this past week, and then one next week. Um, but they're back in uh, Seoul, so they're excited about that. Their ages are 15 to 11? Not 11? Ish, yeah. 12. Oh, he's got to be 11. No, he's got to be 12, because his, his bar mitzvah was in, in January. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so he's coming up. And then uh, the Alexanders are at the beach. So there we go. Joshua, the floor is yours, sir. Okay. All right, well, I like to start um, by asking some of the children's questions. So, Sophia, I want to ask you, why do we keep Shabbat? Because the Torah says to. Right, because the Torah says to. Who wrote the Torah? God. So, we keep the Shabbat because God told us to, right? Right. Zoe, what's something else that God told us to do? Can you think of something? How are you supposed oh. to treat mommy and daddy? This is very good. Yes, right. That's something God told us to do, and we do these things because God told us to, right? Right. One of the things in this week's Torah portion that we learn about is the Shemitah year, the Sabbath year, where you let your land rest for an entire year. In our current society, where we um, grow all of our vegetables at the grocery store, they magically appear whenever we want them, at every time of year. Uh, we don't understand what that means. But during the, uh, during the agrarian society culture that they had at the time, it was an enormous deal to leave your land uh, fallow or resting for an entire year. Um, so one of the ways that this scripture portion begins is that you are supposed to do it to the Lord. It says, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall observe a Sabbath rest for Hashem, for the Lord. And uh, this is uh, Exodus, or excuse me, Leviticus 25, verse 2. And the, uh, the commentary from Rashi talks about this idea that the Sabbath rest for, the, for Hashem, what does that mean? 
It means the idea to do it because Hashem told us to. And this is the only reason that we would do it. Because from a logical perspective, this is really risky. And even today, in modern society, they found that you know it does benefit the land to give it a break that's healthy for the land. But actually, from a purely efficient perspective, it's most healthy, I believe, every three years, not every seven. So it's kind of like when you say, we don't eat pork because that has all sorts of nasty stuff and it's bad for you. That's true, you know, positive side benefit, but that's not why we don't eat pork. The reason we don't eat pork is because God said not to. And there are so many things in our lives that we do strictly because God said so. Um, when I was a child growing up, I sometimes struggled with that as a motivation, you know, questioning my, you know, genuine love for God because oh, I'm just doing it because he said so. And we certainly should do commandments because they're, they're good and they're, we should appreciate them and delight in them. That being said, at the end of the day, it boils down to God said so. As my father-in-law likes to say, it is not God said it, I believe it, that settles it, it is God said it, and that settles it. We only obey God or only do these things because God said so. And I think that's really important because some of these commandments are hard. I mean, some of these things that God has told us to do is not easy, and it doesn't line up with our um, the way that our world works. It doesn't line up with the way that our lives sometimes function. Sometimes it requires us to make sacrifices, and the only justification that makes that worth it is the creator of the entire universe who knows how everything is supposed to function, who has promised that he will reward us for our good deeds, and has promised that he will, that these things are good for us, has told us to do them. That's what we do it. Yes, sir. So, with regard to the Shemitah year, we're, we're to count, and then the next one is when it's Shemitah. Same thing with the Jubilee. We count seven. Seven's the next one. I, I think you need to talk up. I don't think they can hear you in Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, same thing now we just talked about Shavuot, right? So we count. Seven, seven, seven. So that's 49. That'll be next Shabbat. That's the day we're counting and then to. the next day, right. exactly. So um, the pattern, if you look in uh, uh, the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, right? We've got all of the festivals in there. But it starts with the Sabbath, so that you understand. We do six, and then the next day is the Sabbath. And then we work six, and the next day is the Sabbath. It's not a weekend. It's six and one. Right. And same deal. So then knowing how the Sabbath works, we then can see how the rest of the... Uh, festivals work, including the Shemitah and then the Jubilee. Right, but see the pattern. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting how it's all this idea of counting up. Um, it's, it's, as I was saying before, our motivation is because God said so. But that doesn't mean that you should do it begrudgingly. The, uh, there's, the, I think the counting up is designed to create a sense of anticipation. It's almost like it's exciting, you know? You're looking forward to, you're building towards the holiday of Shavuot or the weekly Sabbath or the Shemitah year or the Jubilee year. And uh, even though there are challenges involved in that, um, these things are designed to bring us closer to God. They're designed to connect with God in a different way. Uh, there's excitement. And with, one of the things that's great is the induction of children into keeping the Torah. And um, it's, it's so much fun to count that, oh, we're counting Shavuot right now, to count with the kids. Um, my brother-in-law has designed this really cool board that has like a picture of Moses on top of Mount Sinai and the numbers 1 through 50 all the way up. Put a sticker on each one. He is selling them for $19.99, but not on Shabbat. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. But uh, he came up with this because he wanted kids to embrace 
the, the, the anticipation, the excitement building up to Mashiach awoke. And what's so cool about having children is that they, they do that kind of naturally. They get excited about these things. Uh, there's an energy there. And I think it's really beautiful. It's a good reminder to us how we should be as we prepare for the holidays or, in this case, preparing for Shemitah. Um, Shemitah is not an easy thing. I mean, again, for farmers, it's a big challenge. Uh, but it's a very interesting uh, uh, year. It's not that you can't gather from the ground. It's that you can't harvest. It's different. It was designed so that essentially you let your ground go loose and then you gather in whatever grows naturally. And you can eat it as you go, but anybody can eat it. Anybody in the entire land or any of the animals can go and gather. Some of the commentaries point out that um, you could, you have some stuff stored in your home for like your, you know, your cattle or whatever, but only until the food in the field ran out. Once the field ran out, then whatever you'd gathered in from that year's produce, you had to put back out again because it was designed to be um, kind of a reminder who owns it. Uh, when we have the, um, the Ola offering, the burnt offering, you'd offer the entire thing to God. God doesn't need to eat, so this is not because God needs it, but rather it's a reminder that the entirety of it belongs to God. It was a, it was a holistic offering to God. The Shemitah is a similar concept. It's the idea that the entire land, as God says, you are dwelling on my land. I own the land. So the land uh, belongs to God, and this is a reminder that he's in charge. The Sabbath is the same thing. Every week, what do we read in the, in the Kiddush prayers? It reminds us of the beginning, the creator. We read from Genesis chapter 2, talking about God resting on the seventh day. Why? When we rest on the seventh day, we're acknowledging who created everything, and that he took a break on the seventh day. Uh, this week, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs had a cool commentary all about ownership, but the beginning part, I'd never heard it put so well, but he said, the beginning that we read in Genesis is not an answer to the question, how did the universe come to be? It's an answer to the question, by what right does God have to rule over us? And it's the answer is because he created everything. That's a good point. He's the creator. And therefore, that's the, it's, it's established up front because it's a, it's a law, right, the, uh, the Torah. And so he establishes up front his role in all of this, which was the creator and therefore the master of the universe. Right. That's such a great point. We get that imagery again. And we read um, recently the, the men get together every Tuesday here. Um, and we've been going through the entire episode of scriptures from Matthew to Revelation. We literally just finished that study. Um, they're doing a final cap-off, wrap-up in a couple weeks. But um, we just finished the last chapter of Revelation. And one of the things, the 24 elders, they fall down, they worship God. And what do they specifically say in their praise of God? Worthy are you to receive the honor and glory and power because you have created all things. Amen. The recognition of God's role as creator is what gives him the right to be in charge because he made everything. It's not just that he's the strongest. See, that's what we experience in humanity. Someone is the strongest, someone is the wealthiest, someone is the most popular, whatever it might be. We have to earn the right to be in charge somehow. Um, but God comes with it inherently because God created everything. Before anything was, he was. And after everything ceases to be, as we, as we say in the Adon Alam, he will continue to be. Um, but he creates the entire universe and thereby establishes ownership of it. One of the things in the, uh, in the, the, the weekly prayers and Sabbath prayers in the first uh, stanza of the Shemani Ezra, standing prayer, is um, it says, 
He creates the world. But the word kone is not just the concept of creation. As um, I think it's uh, uh, Rabbi Foreman points out, kone comes with the sense of ownership. It's the acquiring of the world. So it's creation in the sense that he created out of nothing. It's a different word, but same idea. But in so creating, he owns it. And it's, it's that feeling you feel when you, when, uh, you, know, when you have a child. It's not that you own the, I mean, we don't own the child in the same way because we didn't, we're not the only ones who created them. But this is my son. He's not a son that I happen to be caretaker for. I have, at least to some degree for now, a sense of ownership. And at some point in his life, he'll grow old enough and we'll cut him loose and he'll be his own man, so to speak. But it doesn't work that way with God. God owns us for eternity. But that same idea, by participating, by being, in this case, the creator, he establishes ownership. Um, and because he's owner, it's because he's creator, he has the right to give us commandments like Shemitah which are challenging. Yeah, this is a really good reminder, though, because I think if there's that verse towards the after it talks about Yovel, where he says, oh, I just lost it. Well, yeah, what, is that it? I don't know. Where he, says, he says that uh, basically, like, this, the, the land is mine. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, it's in 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are sojourners and residents with me. Uh, that that was the rest of what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was pointing out was like just this it's really hard to understand the, the analogy he uses of how to understand that is the difference between zadaka and charity you know it's the idea of like charity is something that you may give zadaka is something that you have to give mm. the reason you have to give it is because you don't own your money right that's right. Bit, that's that's a loan from God basically right. that you are now to give to someone else and right. so he's saying, like, you know, the land is that way. Basically, everything is that way because God created everything. And he owns everything, and we we happen to be partnering with God and uh, and have everything on loan and have to take care of it. Right, right. And it's that idea. Um, Rabbi Yishai or Rabbi Mike here, along with Yishai Fleischer, did their podcast. One of the things they talk about is um, the Shemitah year, and the in connection with that is the idea. Well, if you saw some portion loan money to your needy brother who needs something, you give them an interest-free loan to their fellow Israelite. Um, and in so doing, uh, it's a reminder that we, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that says, my wealth, this, my, 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 my power is called this wealth. It's this idea of, I earned this money. I earned my possessions. And this mitzvah teaches you, no, you don't. You do not own it. You did not create it. You did not develop it. Now, your hard work has been rewarded by God, but that's not you. You didn't, you're not the owner, the true owner of it. Mm -hmm. God has given it to you in his mercy. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. But yeah. in the end, amongst God, and the reminder of that is the sense of, as you're saying, Daka, that it's, it's, it's generosity, but in a sense it's mandated. Well, it is mandated because it's not yours. And, uh, and, in, and that's a very powerful thing, especially as men. I think it's very easy for us to see the linear connection between I went to work, at 8 in the morning, I stopped work at 5 in the afternoon, and two weeks they give me this money. And that is this connection between my effort and my reward. And what God is teaching us is there's a, that's not true. That's, that's a, an illusion. Your work does not result in you receiving income. Your work's partnering with God in the continuing creation of the universe. And as a result, sometimes God chooses to bless you. How much he blesses you is completely up to him. 
And because it's up to him, some of the things he gives you may not actually be yours. So you should give it to somebody else when you happen to have that opportunity. Yes, sir. The same thing happens in the garden. Right. Right? So Alan and I plant. Alan and I mostly Alan waters. <laughs> but it's God who causes the increase. Right. How many tomatoes or asparagus or cucumbers right. we get right. is completely up to him. Absolutely. Whether he chooses to bring the locust, the the borer squash worm, bug or the spot squash bug or, or you know that the rain falls doesn't fall that's right. it it's, it's all up to the you. frost comes yeah so it's the same thing and you're right as men going to work even women going to work same thing right we work we get paid we work we get paid and we this illusion is there that our effort is causing this money to come to us right but it's not the case right be an easier way to think of it would be think about the lottery where I play the lottery by not playing it and have just as probably better odds of winning by not playing As my dad has pointed out, mathematically, you could uh, happen to snag a lottery ticket in the wind, and the chances of that happening and winning is about the same as playing the lottery and winning. So the lottery's a bad bet, no matter it's how a bad bet. But it's if God wants to bless me that way, then that's the way. Right? Well, there's a beautiful story of uh, Yoni the Sabbath keeper. And in the story, Yoni, every week, buys a fish to make the Shabbat special. And he's not a very wealthy man. So this is an extravagance for him. It's difficult. He saves his money all week so he can specifically buy a nice piece of fish for, or a nice fish for the Sabbath. And there is a wealthy, miserly man who's not very generous, who does not keep the Sabbath, who happens to be in the same town. And he, he sees in a dream that all of his money is going to go to Yoni, and he's terrified of this. So he, he tries to think about how he could possibly keep his own wealth to himself. So he comes with the brilliant idea, I'll invest all of my money in a gemstone, and I'll wear it in a necklace around my neck. Then, then Yoni will never get my money, because he can't touch it. It's on me, literally, all the time. Well, one day, as he's walking across the bridge, he, uh, the gemstone comes loose, falls out. Rolls in the water, snagged by a fish, and guess what fish Yoni happens to get for Shabbat that week? The point is that God's in charge of this, and I think, you know, this is not, it's a Jewish parable in this case, and it's beautiful. Yeshua uses almost the exact same imagery, or not same imagery, but same concept, when he tells the story of the man who raises the barns. He tells the story of this wealthy man, this man does so well for himself, he accumulates all of this, this produce, and he says, Psh, I'm going to build bigger barns, tear down the old ones. I'm going to put my feet up and rest. I'm going to retire early. What else do I have to do? I have more than enough. And God says to him, you fool, your soul will be accounted for you tonight. What then will come of all of your wealth? The lesson that Yeshua is trying to say is not that it's evil to be wealthy. This is what the liberals want to tell you. That's not true. What Yeshua is trying to say is that God's in charge. And if your life is about anything other than serving God, you're missing the point. And all of the rest of it is vanity, as Ecclesiastes says. You know, in this passage, we get this imagery. And what does God say? He says, I will prepare for you food in the sixth year, and it will last you all of the seventh year and all of the eighth year until you can grow more food in the ninth year and eat again. So, but what's fascinating about that is if you in the sixth year go, wow, that was a really good year. I think we should have double the parties this year. That's not going to work so well. Because God provided to carry you through. In other words, God, as we saw with the story of the manna, where God gave just enough for each day, God gives us what we need, and that's 
sort of his blessing for the righteous. Give us what we need. Sometimes what we need is a little bit more than we need. It's great. But the point is that God's caring for us, and if we get caught up in, I need to have more, I want to have more, I want to do more, I need more, then we're going to miss the entire purpose of life because the more doesn't come from what we do. It comes strictly from God's blessing. And if we live righteously, as it says in our in our, um, our after dinner prayer, we quote from the Psalms, I've been the old man, I've never seen a righteous man forsaken, his children begging for bread. If we live righteously, God's promised to take care of us. Sometimes that means dying from hunger and going to be with him for the eternity. But the point is that generally speaking, God provides for us financially. And our focus needs to be on him. Um, so that's Shatah year. Uh, one of the other things that we read about in this passage in connection with Shatah year is the different types of land. And there's different rules for different types of land. So for those of us who are not like my in-laws and don't have um, a garden of three quarters of an acre sitting in our backyard, um, we didn't really understand the concept of the difference between living in a walled city and living in a field city. It's like we live in the suburbs or something in between. Um, but we are all used to the suburban, busy, busy city life. Um, the farmland, interestingly enough, cannot be sold forever. So you sell the land, and in the 50th year, it goes back to the person who sold it. The cities... Because God gave that land to that family. Right. And that's at, um, that's where we're going here. So the key, the key missing, well, not missing, but the key component here is the land was given to the specific tribes as part of their allocations, um, and it's settled. When Joshua divvies out the land, that's it, forever. What's on loan? Right, it's not really yours. Um, the land of Israel, by the way, actually has this concept. Huge chunks of the land of Israel are owned by the Jewish National Fund, which is like a essentially their National Park Service kind of city. It's not really government, but it kind of is. It's sort of in between. The point is that they own the land. So when you buy a house on the land for these certain chunks of the country, you actually end up with a 99-year lease. It isn't technically yours. Um, and this is one of the ways that uh, certain parts, of, again, in certain parts of the country, um, certain people can own it who aren't even actually citizens. They don't actually own it. They have a 99-year lease on the property. Um, that's kind of the idea here. You have a 50-year lease on this property. 49. 49-year. And every 50 years, it reverts to the person that God gave it to originally. But with the city, it's different. We live in a city, if you lived in a walled city, then your um, house, property, you can only redeem it for one year. And then it's gone forever. Uh, Rabbi Mike, is, his commentary on this, that was really interesting. He said that this whole portion, talking about the Shemitah year, talking about interest-free loans, talking about supporting your brother, talking about the Jubilee, is an interesting contrast to today's capitalistic society, where you earn a paycheck and you earn a paycheck, and if I work, I don't get a paycheck, and maybe you can help me if you choose to, but at the end of the day, there's no obligation on any either of you to help me out. I can die of starvation because I didn't work, or maybe, I didn't, maybe my, my work didn't profit me, whatever. Um, that's a strictly capitalist society, Adam Smith at its purest. Um, the Bible is sort of a weird hybrid. It doesn't quite work that way. Uh, it's not communist by any means. Personal property is very much important. At the same time, it's not. Sometimes God's like, that's not really yours. As he says, the land is mine. 
the walled cities, Rabbi Mike was pointing out, it's almost like this is sort of, when you live in a city, there is the need for personal property. There's a lot of people in a small space. And they all, in order to make that city function, they've all got to work together and do different things. When you live on a farm, you can literally live all by yourself and survive. You plant your produce, it grows, you eat it. If there's nobody else on the planet that happens to stray past your farm, you don't need them. All you need is land and the produce and the rain and God, and that's it. When you live in a city, you are inherently dependent on all the people around you. As a result, that makes personal property extremely important. You all have to work together as a machine. If there's, if the, if, if it's strictly boiled down to sort of this, um, it's a different setup, I guess, than being a farmer. And because of that, then there is a different. God had, takes a different approach to ownership uh, in order to make this function. I don't know, it's an interesting theory. Um, God is a God of order, and in a city, if if there was a continual changing of hands property, there would be less order, there would be less understanding of what was whose and how things mm -hmm. and so it's like a hut house. Somebody could come back and go, oh that was mine, you know, I need mm -hmm. it back. You know. So I think in God's mind to give us the stability that we need. Mm -hmm. I mean one of the verses in Psalms that I love is and he will give you that security for which you seek. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as we look for those things, God provides for us the, the things we needed. And, and on a farm, the land, as we said, is God's and, and the tribes. But in a city, we need that order and that structure and that security that comes with that home. Right. And it's interesting to see God's wisdom and understanding that in human interactions there's a difference. I mean, that's, that's overly simplifying, but essentially what really contrasts north versus south in this country for generations, the South was farmland. It was people who lived by themselves, far away from other people, and so life is slower. Life is a lot more about those interpersonal relationships, because you might only see somebody once a week. City life is the predominant up north. Factories took over 200 years ago. So there is a hustle and a bustle and a busyness and a need to keep moving, and there's a lot of people, and if I say and talk to you for five minutes, that means that I can't catch my train to get to my job, so we're going to maybe smile, maybe not even that much time, and move on. On the flip side, it also means that like you have a lot more efficiency. You know, it's like up north, it's like we don't have time for a lot of the... Um, so therefore, we're, we're, like, we're used to it, you know? The pleasantries. Well, that's not so much the pleasantries, but we have a different format for them. That's what I'm saying. It's not so much it's right or wrong, it's like a different, a different mentality. In the south, we can talk and talk and talk about nothing, because that's okay. Up north, you want to say it in two sentences, because it's all the time we have. So it's basically, it's a lot of it has to do with the farm versus the city life. God, in his wisdom, understands that even when it comes to personal property, there's a difference, a contrast. They go through I would argue that what you're saying also works in the suburbs. In the, in the hut house, we got one on the corner. And that house never seems to have a family in it. Hmm. That's interested in the community and hmm. in in keeping it nice and all that. They're they're gone. Another family, you know that kind of thing. So same same turnovers. Turnover. Yeah, and and that continuity which brings the security. I know my neighbors. I know that guy. You know. Uh, wait a minute. There. You know. What are you doing over there? You're not. I know you don't live there because I know all his kids. That kind of thing brings that security and even, I think, here in the suburbs, has the same kind of effect 
if it's not there. So it's almost like in the farmland where things inherently are a longer term vision just because of the style of life. Um, there is that need for that permanence to be built in through a generational view. In the city life, things are a lot busier and faster moving. That permanence needs to be created much quicker. You've got to, so basically there's almost like a threat. Like you don't want to sell your house because you only have a year to redeem it. If you redeem it in a year, it's gone. And the new family moved in, they're, they're the new normal. Because you need to have that consistency and that, that community. One of the things that we, get, we learn as we're reading through this portion, and one thing Rabbi Mike and Yishai Fleischer talk about, this portion teaches us that God's vision is not so that he can have a really awesome collection of individuals serve him, as great as that is. God's vision is that a nation would follow him. And that nation is going to have a connection to a physical land. That nation is going to be a country of rules and regulations. That nation is going to even have rules on how to deal with the people who are not part of the nation who happen to live there. So it's like God's vision was never about simply a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a bunch of people, although that is part of what he does. His ultimate goal is to bring together a collection of humanity that are united in a common cause to serve him. Yes, really, but, and, you know, about the practical things, you know, uh, we get a lot, a lot of economic things from this passage to uh, the concept of a one-year warrant, the concept of hmm. pro-ratio based on, um, right. on, on diminishing or increasing value. Right. But we also, I mean, and we talk about the practicality of, of the fact that, that our um, people that are city dwellers, uh, the, the influx, outflux, imagine everybody in, their, in, your, in the city all has to leave at the end of every year. At the end of every forty-nine years, and a whole right. new group comes. They live there for forty-nine years, and then they all leave. And then, you know, eventually they leave, and the original people keep coming back, keep coming back. <laughs> so that would be extremely disruptive in a city. But on, on, I think the more important thing for stuff, if we're looking at practical reasons, the more important thing is it's the Levites. The Levites are the are the are the glue in the city mm. because that's where the Levites was the only place that they could live, that they could own. Mm -hmm. would be in a city. So the Levites became the glue, which would be, talk about communities of people which are always always uh, diminishing in moral and ethics. It'd be good to have the Levites be the ones that are the glue in that place. And they can't leave. Their, their, their city uh, houses revert back to them, the Jubilee. They're not allowed to sell their farmland property that's in the outskirts of the city. Um, you're right. They're, they're intended to be a lot more permanent. And even if they don't necessarily live in your city, you know that Rabbi Yosef lives in that city over there. And he's always going to live in that city over there because the rules are structured that he's going to stay there. Um, whereas, you know, Bob and Tim over here, they may they may come and go, as it, as it were. Um, so I think that, that you're right. That is those good Jewish names. Um, you see that, uh, that, that God, is, again, I'm trying to, as we're trying to say here, God is creating a community. And um, it's a vision that's so much bigger than I think something that we can comprehend in our traditional Christian society. And that's not being on Christianity. It's that Christianity doesn't have that kind of vision. But, um, but God's mentality was always about a people and as a nation, not just a collection of people. And this, these rules really, really define what that looks like and create that stability and create that consistency. And even to the point of like, 
uh, one thing Rabbi Mike points out, and then you and the, and the sages say about this passage as well, that like part of why you give interest-free loans is because they recognize it is easier to help someone when they are falling, when they hit the ground. The example that one of the sages gives to create one, it's like if you if your neighbor is carrying some stuff on the back of their donkey and the load starts to come off. One or two guys can run over and be like, wait, hang on, you put that back up up there. We're good, we're good, back away, it's okay, it's okay now. If it hits the ground, it could take 10 times that number of men to pick it back up again. The point being is it's easier to help someone when they need help than when they're broken. And so the whole idea of the interest loan, as opposed to the charity that we were talking about earlier, um, is that you would give them the means to endure as is. I'll give you, I'll give you something, you hold on, you get you weather the storm, and then you pay me back, if possible. Or if not, then at the end of seven years, back away, and that's that's gone now. Um, and hopefully by then they've managed to recover. Six years, yeah. Um, in the seventh year. Right. So uh, in Leviticus 25, um, we, starting uh, 35 through 38, is about the, the prohibition against taking interest. I'd like to talk about I don't know if you realize it, but in the, in the past two weeks, there was a, a big uh, hullabaloo uh, in the Orthodox community because some Orthodox groups came out and said, you know, you. We can't use Quicken Loans. No Jews should use Quicken Loans and get a mortgage from those guys. Because the owner is Jewish. Huh. Ah, interesting. Big hullabaloo. I bet so. Mm. That's very interesting. Yeah. Right, actually, so, because so, there's, there's a, a category of finance right now called peer-to-peer -peer lending. And it's essentially online facilitation of just exactly what we're talking about, yeah. where you're like, hey, you need $1,000 for something. I don't know what it's for, but I'm going to give you $1,000, you know, and then here's the interest, here's the interest rate. And uh, I, I was just talking to Morgan about this being like, I don't know if we could actually do that. How would you ever know if you were, you know, coming across something like this? Right. And, and that's where this orthodox, I can't, I, I tried to look it up before you got here, I just couldn't find it quick enough. But that's, that's the idea is, wait a second. If you're a Jew, Quicken Loans is not an option. <laughs> His son-in-law, by the way, does work for a rival to Quicken Loans, so this works out great. Okay. <laughs> Ironically, yeah, the fact the that is Jews can't charge interest to one another, but are specifically given permission to charge interest to non-Jews, non yeah. is how Jews have become the most wealthy, wealthy in the world. It's because, <laughs> it's because yeah. the Catholic Church adopted this. No, only only Catholics. If you have a Catholic, you can't charge interest. So they would have the and Jews act as Catholic. brokers. The Jews ended up being the brokers. They were the bankers for the Catholic Church, which that worked out really well. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, and that's the thing, though. See, on the flip side, that's where so much anti-Semitism stemmed from, because they would look at Jews and they would say, "Well, this isn't fair. You're giving interest. You're giving free loans over to your to your you know fellow Jews, but you're charging the interest." Well, actually, it's very fair. This is the way it should be. The Jews getting the free loans, that's, that's great. You can't charge interest. He's family. But see, that's the difference. And that's what they're saying. That's the goal as a nation. See, I think that's one of the things we learned when we read this passage 
God's saying, look, everybody within these borders, you have rules that apply only to people in these borders. You know, in our current egalitarian society, at least certainly in places like Europe, they like to pretend like there are no borders. As a result, Sweden has now become the rape capital of the world because, well, it's not Swedes, let's just say that. The point is that you need to have borders. You need to have rules. You need to have us and them. Not to say that we don't treat, there isn't a certain degree of universal love and fairness and justice. Absolutely. But there need to be benefits to being part of this country versus part of that country. That's totally fine. It's not That's how the universe accountability. Right. So, so we, as, as whatever nation you're living in, you have an accountability to your leaders. You have an accountability to uh, support your leaders, to obey the laws and all those things. Whereas people from outside don't have that responsibility. So the benefit is, 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 a, is an outgrowth of the responsibility. And it's also a, uh, there's a covenantal relationship inherent there too. If you live here as an immigrant, you may pay taxes, you may keep our laws. But at any time, you can decide, I'm done, and I'm leaving. But, but you're speaking of, and so is your father, of legal immigration. Illegal immigration causes all kinds of problems because everything he just said doesn't apply. Right. Because you're not part of the, the group. You're not part of the government. And, as, and, and you, you said, I'm, I'm just a legal immigrant. I can stay here. I can work. I can make some money. I can do whatever I want. I can't vote. Wait, if you want to leave, you leave. But if you become a citizen, as my grandparents did, right. it was a letter day for them. They, I mean, they were thrilled. Right. Mm -hmm. So they were part of the country. And the benefits that your dad just talked about became their right. benefits. And that's, I think that's God's vision. See, the thing is, we think about it from a national perspective, um, this is a great example, because God creates rules that are designed, there's those interesting loopholes for the random person who happens to be physically dwelling there, but it's not really part of the community. Like a visitor. Yeah, like a visitor, like a, like a legal immigrant, right? But there is, a, there is a process, whereas if you want to become a citizen, then you get to experience a different level of benefits. And... Um, and in the, uh, but as you pointed out, when you're not a citizen, you can't vote. There are rules. There are, there are benefits. But what's the result? What did you say? You said your your grandparents, Grandpa. when they became citizens, they were thrilled. What did you have? You had a hundred percent buy-in to this country, to this community, this culture. The problem, the danger with illegal immigration, especially, is there's no buy-in. There's no cost. There may be difficult to get here. That there may be. I'm not discrediting that. But once you're here, you don't have an investment in this country. You receive benefits for being here, but you don't have any particular tie to it. That's dangerous in the long run because you undermine the country. You're a counterculture. You're a different way of doing things, and you have no reason to assimilate because they're not you. God's vision was similar. Especially if you get benefits for being free. For being free. That's totally yeah. that. Let's but, not go there. But God's, God's system is designed to create a homogenous culture. He wanted everybody to serve him. The only way to really do that is to create a system in which there, there's, you want to get all of the benefits for being part of here? Well, here's the cost of what that looks like. And if you're not willing to pay that cost, if you're not willing to be followers of God in that special way, you don't get that. You're in a different category. We're still going to treat you fairly. We're still going to treat you justly. But you don't get all the benefits for being part of us. This is extremely important because, as Rabbi Lappin points out, sacrifice that you make creates investment of you in product, and as a result, you care more about it. So when I give you a gift, I actually love you more. The goal is not for you to like me more. 
It's about me being closer to you because I've invested in you. Right. Same thing with the country. When I invest in this country by voting, by serving in the military, by paying my taxes, whatever it might be, now I become tighter connected to this country. I'm more in, desirous to see it succeed, and I'm desirous to see it succeed in a way that it was intended to. God wants that for his people. Yes, sir. Every, every, uh, every civilization or even lack of civilization it requires a social, a social compact. Even the most primitive tribes have social compact. There's rules that you want to be around us, you got to follow these rules. Right. And they're unwritten, but it's always there. And this is not that. But God made us as social creatures to work within rules that are, that, are, that are cultural rules. But what he did is he gave us, this is his ideal. That's the difference. The difference is this is ideal. That's why when you have a, usurpers, people who come in and don't want to follow the rules, it's actually, it's a, it's a, it's, it is a it's a thumb in the eye of the of the citizens, it's like but it's a thumb in the eye of in this case God Himself because He's the one that gave this. Right, exactly right. So That's the worst point. heretics in the land of Israel during this time would be those who were I mean, were driven out because they were the, those who would not follow the rules. Well, and what does God say? God tells them, "Don't let the current people there stay." Why? Because He says it'll be a thorn in your side. They're going to create a cult, a counterculture. They're going to create an, a competing vision for how the universe should work. That's not what you want in, in turn, inside. We talk about the idea of a fifth column, that idea of, of a, a counterculture that threatens the whole. Um, it's not a new concept. It goes, it's been going on for a really long time. And as, we're, as I, I brought up the example of Sweden, they're experiencing some of that. When you reason why certain countries in, in Europe are restructuring some of their immigration policy to be a little more selective, or a little more focused, or a little more um, uh, intentional, I guess. Because they realize that having open borders doesn't really work. You invite a lot of things that you don't want. Are not necessarily wrong, but you, that, that run counter to the way that you some live. Of some of them wrong. are wrong. Um, but sometimes they're, uh, they're just simply a, a, um, a competing vision that rivals your own. And that's dangerous because it divides that homogenous whole that you're trying to create that's necessary for society to function well, as we talked about earlier with the city and the consistency therein. And it's interesting, though, in verse 35 of chapter 25, it says, if, you're, if your brother becomes impoverished and his means falter in your proximity, you shall strengthen him, proselyte or resident, so that he can live with you. And the word resident there is the ger. Um, it's fascinating to me that those of us who are not Israelites genetically get counted in here um, and throughout the Torah it makes a big deal of there should be one law for you and the, and the person living among you a stranger dwelling among you um, and there are different categories of strange dwelling among you there are those who um, are almost like a legal uh, legal immigrant type where it's like they just happen to technically be part present um, and they have rules they have to follow but there are also some rules they don't have to follow because they're not part of the whole then there's a separate, there's, a, there's like, there seems to be a concentric circle of people who are not genetically part of the family, so to speak, but they have, um, through a, a spiritual conversion process, um, choosing to serve him and keep his Torah, they have now become, uh, they're on a similar level. Same responsibilities. Same responsibilities. Um, and, some, and some of the same benefits, really same benefits as, as the genetic people. Um, they should remember that they're not genetically 
the originals, so they should treat them with humility, but they are, they are intertwined in a special way. And then concentric circle again. I think Rabbi Mike uh, Ishai Fleischer said, constant circles of holiness. So you have the people who live in the country who are not part of the group, but they're here, and they have rules that have followed benefits, not all of them. They have God's people who are always here, and they have rules that follow and benefits within God's people. You have Levites, and they have special rules and special benefits. And the Levites, you have the Kohanim and the priests, right? So they have their own rules and benefits. And within that, you have the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and he has his own rules and benefits. So this, this, this constant circle, uh, circles of holiness um, creates a holistic system. They're not all treated the same, if we are equal. Um, but that's okay. That's the way that God designed it. I think it's important to keep that in mind because as we deal with a lot of issues in this country, struggle with issues with immigration, we are called to love the stranger. Absolutely. There's we no, there's no, uh, there's no excuse for mistreating those who are different than us, um, or who are not part of this society. But there's also nothing wrong with having a hierarchical system in which those who have invested the most as being part of this country or who are born here, however it may be, um, and therefore responsible for keeping all of our laws with a permanence that comes with that because you're, hey, you're stuck, can't go anywhere else. Um, they get special privileges. That's okay. Again, God's creating a nation. Uh, it's so interesting that at the end of this whole passage of all of this economic stuff, right? Talking about giving loans, talking about the Shemitah year, Jubilee, and all those things. It ends uh, chapter 25, verse 55. It says, For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I have taken out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai your God. Um, that phrase, I am Adonai your God, shows up over and over again in the, the sages' commentary. They keep noting. This is because so many of these mitzvot, so many of these commandments, have to do with things where no one's looking. What's your, really your intent? Are you charging interest to you? Do you know that person's an Israelite? Or are you kind of assuming they're maybe they are not? Are you going to find a loophole to get around the rule? Third party. I'll give my money at interest to the non-Jew, knowing he's planning to loan it to the Jew at interest, and thereby create a little triangle in which I end up on the, on the higher end. Or I'm not going to give my brother money because I know the seventh year is coming up and I'm going to have to withhold that. But no one knows that I have the money, so they don't know that I, you know. The point is over and over again, it says, I am Hashem. I know what you're thinking. I know what's in your heart. I know what your intent is. And that should influence us. As we're talking about with Sophia at the beginning, we obey God because he told us to. But that means we have to obey him all the way through, the way we think we feel because God sees everything and he told us to serve him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our resources it reminds me of Hebrews 4 talking about the word of God is living in purple sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart right so that's one of the reasons he gives us all these words and all these commandments and these understandings so that we can discern what is the best choice in that time. Right. And he gives it so that we can, even in ourselves, discern what the intents of our hearts are. Right, because it kind of um, 
I don't think the setting, separating the wheat from the chaff kind of thing, it's like it filters. When you, uh, it's amazing. You want to know what's really in your heart? Um, walk around the town and interact with somebody who looks a little dingy. And they're going to probably end up asking you for money. Your reaction will tell a lot to you about how you really view the universe. You know, the, the sense of frustration or anger, arrogance, fear, whatever it might be, or, or generosity and love, whatever it could be. It's like, it's kind of like that, that God's commandment about being generous definitely starts to filter through what the real intent is and it helps you learn to focus. And we're, this whole period of time between now and Shavuot, we're counting up, is the goal is to become better. The goal is to enhance our relationship with God. So along the way, we're weeding out those things that God doesn't want, and these commandments help us do that. They help us focus, clean them out. That's a perfect segue into, did you hear Rabbi Shlomo Katz's Oh, yes, podcast? so good. Yeah, because... Bahugatai is the next passage right. to double for our portion this, this week. Yeah, and so if this one ends with this reiteration, I am Adonai, your God, I am Adonai. Even his command, it says, my Sabbaths you shall observe, and you just pointed out, Sabbath is literally a memorial of the act of creation right. and the exodus from Egypt. But, right. I mean, you know, that it's, it's a reminder that God is in charge, the Sabbath. And so, yeah, he pointed out, uh, I, I found a different word that he used in his podcast on Chabad.org, but it's basically that uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe had suggested that Bahukotai relates to the word Chakiti Chaki, yeah, yeah. or something like that. And uh, it's it's particular the, the word means engraving. Right, same word that's like a statue, right? Yeah. Statue. It's an engraving. But the root comes from the idea of an engraving. It's like it, it. I think it is related to like a king, you know, engraving. This is the rules, or like a signet ring kind of idea. Okay. So there's a connection it's, it's between a royal, engraving. It's a royal decree. So you do it because well, the king said so. Right. Right. And just how the following the commandments. That's what it. That's what you want to do. You know that you're not just writing them down, but uh, like the the. Rebbe was pointing out that if you write something down, like the ink does sort of become a part of the parchment, it's still separate. But when you truly engrave something into something else, there is only one thing. Mm. They, they exist as one. And right. that's kind of our goal is to get to that point with Hashem, is that we're, we, we don't want just a, just a mere writing of the Torah on our hearts, where we, it's, it just becomes what we do. That's just who we are as a living It's an engraving in our hearts. It reminds me of the righteous man, right? And exactly. You, you, you hear of a righteous man, and you know how he will act or react in a certain situation, because his mindset and the Torah commands are one. They're they're no longer. I'm not going to keep that one today. You know, that doesn't. I'm not, just not, not not feeling. I'm not feeling. I'm not feeling the shadows. You know, I'm not going to do it. That's not what I don't feel like God's told me to keep that this week. This week, yeah, you know. It's, it's, it's like, the, I mean, the end of the portion actually uses the righteous man. And the, and the very beginning of this portion, what it says is, it says, Im b'chukotai telaku, literally translated, in my, in my commandments, my statutes, you shall walk. 
But what Rabbi Katz is getting at is, it's almost like you could read it, engrave my commandments in your walking. As if to say, as you go about your day, as you live in this world, they're becoming. They're, they should become part of you. You should be bringing them into existence in this creation. Um, and I'm reminded so much of this amazing drosh. And it may have been amazing because it was 3.30 in the morning. It's an amazing drosh that I heard in Jerusalem on Shavuot, or day of Shavuot. So traditionally in Jerusalem, on uh, Shavuot, they will literally stay up all night studying the Torah. All they do all night long. And it's cool because you'll, as you're walking around Jerusalem, you'll see people in traditional wear white for the holiday. You see you in white going from synagogue to synagogue. It's synagogue hopping. It's like bar hopping. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is like the, uh, the inverse of, bat, you know, the, of, of uh, New Orleans, right? It's like mm -hmm. basically our New York City. We have all these holy people going from one synagogue to the next trying to find a really cool drosh in the middle of the night. Really cool. We cap the whole thing with prayers in the morning, and it's going to be the best anti-hangover you've ever had. Mm -hmm. The point is that um, the, in the middle of this, we went to the uh, Orthodox Union uh, Synagogue, and they're one of the ones who speak English. That's really good, 3.30 in the morning. Um, and they gave this, the guy gave this incredible drosh around a commentary that's connected to, uh, well, drosh is a commentary, a commentary on a commentary that's connected to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, we, we've seen the movie, you know, get the stone and God carved in the letters. That's cool. In the tradition, the letters are carved all the way through. Now, what makes that a little odd is um, if you study Hebrew, you know the some letters don't have interconnections. So like if you carve an E all the way through something, um, that's fine because the E has pieces that are sort of connected to other pieces. But if you carve an O all the way through something, you're going to end up with a giant hole because there's going to be a little centerpiece in the middle that's going to fall out. Well, the Hebrew letter Sameh and the Hebrew letter Mem, Sophit, are similar concepts. They have this, this holistic circle shape, and the centerpiece won't stay if you carve all the way through. Traditionally, they were suspended mm -hmm. in the Ten Commandments. They floated in the midst so that even though it was carved all the way through, you could, you, they would stay the letter. The reason for this cool drosh was not just to blow our minds at 3.30 in the morning. The point that he was trying to make is that the tablets literally became a testimony to the power of God. That the, it wasn't just that the words were written on them. They themselves became part of a testimony of God. And his point was to say that should be true of us. That it's not enough for us to simply, as you say, have it you know, written in ink on our hearts, know God's commandments, and to keep them more or less, but to have them so embodied in us that we become the commandment. We become the testimony to God. We become the miracle that other people see, and they, they see God when they look at you. That was the goal. And, uh, and it reminds me of, of uh, Paul, right? Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, it's not enough to just simply not be the bad, but you must become, or even to stay status quo, you must become changed. You must become a different person. And how? But become so immersed, and you mentioned the righteous man. He always does the right thing. 
I will tell you right now, there's not a human being on the planet that always does the right thing the very, very first time. The righteous man has done the right thing every single day over and over and over again. And when he walks up to the guy that's asking for money, he doesn't have to think about it. He's done it a thousand times. He knows exactly what the action will be. And when he gets up in the morning after studying all night long for Shavuot, he doesn't have to ask the question whether or not he's going to say Shema. Because it's built in. Of course he will. To not do that would be to defy who he is. And that, so it's, and, and because of that, that begins to bleed into all the things that do become the first times. He's shown love to someone so many times when they maybe didn't totally deserve it, that when he meets a complete jerk, it's easy. He treated everybody else that way. Why wouldn't he treat this person that way? And that's the goal. The chukotai. That you hit. Inscribed. Engraved. I thought that, that, that drosh is like, mm -hmm. I had to like re-listen to it again, like parts of it, because it was like, it was so deep. It was like, whoa, let me think about this. What does this mean? Well, yeah, it was interesting that you quoted Paul too, because he was coming off of the class about the book that they're studying, B'nai Makshavatova, which is like Sons of Good Thought. It's all oh, about, right. like, it's it's this this idea, the whole book written by this, this Rebbe was just all about how to clean your thoughts basically like transforming your mind into something that is going to enable you to keep the commandments when that opportunity arises so that you're not in a kind of preparing for battle before you're actually in battle right and Which you have um, to do so it's it's just really cool because of course paul i love that verse too from romans 12 which it sounds just like that right right and we saw this i mean that, that particular rabbi, rabbi who wrote that book ended up dying in the holocaust so you know like he faced unprecedented things to become that kind of person, to face that, you have to be consistent when it's easy. I mean, it's incredible to read some of the stories of the men who refused to eat pork when the Germans would only give them pork. Then, I mean, there's one story uh, Rebecca Jungris tells of her father. So, such an incredible story. He, he was one of those guys. He would refuse to eat anything in kosher. So he ended up with a pile of apples that he found. And he stashed them in his clothes to, to save them for later. And one of his fellow Jews, who was anti-Torah, you know, look, what's wrong with you? Just do what you have to do to survive, actually snitched on him, told the Germans. The Germans made him go out and do push-ups, and all the apples started falling out and rolling away. Rebiz and Junger said her, her father would tell the story and laugh. He's like, you should have seen the apples. It was so funny. Because he had been changed. The type of man that he was, he was angry and bitter and and feeling like I was trying to serve God and someone betrayed me and that's why I gave up the whole thing. He was so transformed by being consistent in his obedience to Hashem that God changed his heart and his emotional reactions to things were good. I think that that's something that I think that we we lose track of sometimes. We get so caught up in the doing of the Torah, which is important, and I think we start. We have to realize that the doing of the Torah's intent is to so transform us that even the feeling that we have becomes changed. I mean, if you've ever, well, those of you who are married, can, for any period of time, can know this is true. Your spouse, especially if it's your wife, husbands aren't as good at this. Wives apparently are incredible. It's like they know exactly what you're feeling. You know, you can look at them and you can say, hey, everything's fine. Come on, come on, tell me, really, what's wrong? You know, it's like, 
everything is fine that I want to tell any other human being in the planet. <laughs> okay, fine, there is something that I do to tell you, but I don't want to tell you, but you're making me now. Fine. The point is, and I'm glad you do this because it's helping me work through these things. The point is that um, these, uh, but in that moment you realize that how I feel matters too. It's not enough what I do. And I think it's so easy sometimes to get caught up and like, well, it only matters what I do. That's not true. How you feel matters too. But the only way to change how you feel is to become so immersed in the good and to consistently do the good that it bleeds in. Otherwise, um, if you spend your time dwelling on how miserable you feel, you're only going to perpetuate that. You have to replace it with something. I think the next uh, passage talking about the commandments and the cause and effect doesn't negate suffering. Hmm, right. there's, there's, we're still human beings, beginning in verse 6. I will grant peace in the land. Mm -hmm. You go to sleep, and nothing frightening. I will eliminate wild animals from the land. Foreign swords will not pass through your land in peace. Never mind in war. You will chase away your enemies as they're running away. They'll fall down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All those are a result of obeying God. So it's like when you obey Him, this is what this will be the outcome for your society. It doesn't negate suffering. It doesn't say that you'll never. It doesn't say you'll never die. Right. Right. So if right. if. You know, the number one suffering that all of us face is, is death, whether it's gradual death or, or ultimate death. We're all, we're all in the process of dying, and because of that, there's going to be suffering. Right. Someone you know dies. Someone down the street dies. All those things bring suffering. But the, the, the society that is existing in this passage is a society of, of stability, of, of uh, um, order as opposed to one of chaos. And, this is, and the society that disobeys God, which is contrasted by the rest of the passage, this portion, is one of all and only chaos. And we know historically that it's a prophetic thing as well because we see it not only in Deuteronomy, we see it being spelled out prophetically here. It's exactly the exact things happen with regard uh, to the Babylonian captivity and those times leading up to it. But the... Um, the, the chaos is, 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 you know, overwhelming. The irony is that God's made us as human beings super resilient and that we can go through the chaos and still even be functioning instead of drooling messes. It's amazing. I mean, the chaos that's mentioned here is like the Holocaust. It's awful. Awful, awful. It gets Unbelievably worse. awful. It gets worse. You're that's right. right. It's like, how bad can this be? And then he says, but I'm going to go with you. So apparently, mm -hmm. they still survive. <laughs> right. Now, right. to your mother's point earlier, before we get into if you don't obey and, you know, all the horrible things that happen, um, verse uh, 5 of Leviticus 26 ends with, you'll be satisfied even with a small amount of your bread and you will live securely and safely in the land. That security is so important. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's what your father's alluding to is that, you know, God's going to go with them. And even though it's horrible and bad, He's still going to be there. And, and the hope as you get towards the end of the chapter is that, you know, I'm only doing this because I want you right. to be. I want you to come back. Come back to me. And I think that's the idea when we read it from Paul. So contentment with godliness is great gain. Um, because as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes and Kohelet, you realize that all the stuff that he accumulates doesn't matter. Nothing matters. 
the only and so I think it's the idea is like when you serve Hashem and that becomes what matters most the circumstances become less relevant um, as, they, as you pointed out the, uh, in, in your uh, enhanced version they, they insert that little commentary point there probably in parenthetical yeah. saying you even when you what, how does it phrase you eat your bread to, to satisfaction it, 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 it gives a caveat there um, you'll be busy with threshing until the grape harvest the grape harvest will keep you busy until the sowing season you'll be satisfied even with even a small amount of your bread and you will live safely Right, so the idea being that because you've been transformed, you'll be content with whatever you have, um, which is really what we're looking for, because really our purpose is to serve God. It's not to make wealth or be prosperous or whatever. We happen to live in an amazingly prosperous society, Baruch Hashem. Um, but the point of that was to give us opportunity to serve Hashem. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things the sages teach us, that, that, that the reason why it's so crucial for the exodus to happen was not because God has a problem with slavery, <laughs> actually just read the last chapter our last section that not all slavery is bad gasp um, but the problem was when his his people are in slavery they can't serve him they have another master to serve and that's not God's purpose so, so they had to be freed so that they could, so what does he say over and again in the Exodus that you may serve me that they may serve me that was the point and it's like we were talking about earlier about the emotional component to it. Um, you get that in this portion. It says, verse 14, But if you will not listen to me, and will not perform all these commandments, verse 15, if you consider my decrees loathsome, and if you re being rejects my ordinances so as not to perform all my commandments so that you annul my covenant, then I will do the same to you. Um, I'm sure you're talking this morning when you were reading through this about Daniel's time. And how the people had come to this very place, and so Nebuchadnezzar came in and took them off in you know, different groups until there was nothing left but pretty much desolation, and made them stay gone until the land had rested, and, and until they had come back to the place where they were longing to go back right. to what God had given them, and, and know, they started they, praying for them, and they did, and and this. Korean, apparently one of these Korean men that were just released um, wrote out that song wow, cool. that, um, and handed it to the president when he met him. Uh, that, um, when we read the Dreamers of Zion and, oh, yeah. and, and yeah. returning. Um, so, you know, God had, had laid that on their hearts where they longed for right. for that place that they had not taken care of appropriately. Right. And, um, and so right. this just, you know, all reminded me of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's time. Absolutely. I think that, you think about it, that's, each exile has been kind of in that gear. So the, the Babylonian exile, it was over the lock of the Shemitah and idolatry. Those were the two big ones. Um, so what happens? Well, they got sold into a foreign land, so Shemitah is kind of a big deal here. Now you don't have anything now. You don't own squat. <laughs> then the other thing is the um, idolatry. I mean, Daniel, in all the stories, Daniel has to turn down this and turn down that, and he get, you know, his friends get thrown into the fiery furnace, and it's like, idolatry becomes not an option, right? And what's amazing is that after that exile ends, the people go back to the land, they never had a problem with Shemitah year again, and they never had a problem with idolatry. They're keeping the commandments with, with amazing zeal. No more high place. But then what happens 500 years later? That zeal and that passion they, as we see in Revelation with the 
church at Ephesus, the assembly at Ephesus, they lost that love. They, they had zeal, but they lacked care for their brothers. So what does God do? He cast them into an exile, but unlike the Babylonian exile, in this particular one, they don't all go to the same place. The Jews are scattered literally across the planet. Now we have Asian Jews, and we have Russian Jews, we have European Jews, and Sephardi Jews, and Arab Jews, and South American Jews, and oh my goodness, there's Jews everywhere. There's Jews all over the world. Some Jews get lost, there's so many of them, and they scatter so far. So what does that end up creating? It takes 2,000 years to really culminate in this vision, but what do you end up with? You end up with the Jewish people. What is their goal? To create a nation, Jews. What do they want? To be together again. What was their crime that got them banished? Baseless hatred. They hated the people who were they were the other fellow Jews because they, for whatever reason, could have been jealousy, could have been uh, inappropriate religious zeal, whatever the reason was, they lacked love for their brother. By in the form of the exile that God uses, as God's doing here in this passage, as we're reading in the Chupatai, in Leviticus, God's goal was to transform that heart. So that at the end of this time, you've got a secular Jew who doesn't even believe that God exists practically in, in Herzl. And the only thing that he mm -hmm. wants is to get as many Jews as possible in the same place. Yeah. Wow. Total, 100% reverse from where they were they in the first century. And then God fulfills it, and they came. And what do you see? I mean, it's amazing. The, 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 I mean, current society, Israeli society has its problems. Don't get me wrong. There are still lots of divisions and issues that they have to work through. But it's phenomenal that you have not only, it's one thing to like have other Jews and treat them fairly. Jews from literally the whole planet, speaking different languages. I mean, unbelievable amount of diversity. Different skin colors. Different skin colors, Go different ethnicities, it. different foods, different everything. Oh my goodness, everything is different. And yet, there they are, united together, living in the same country. And they all serve in the IDF. Yeah, they serve in the same military. The and they learn the same language. I mean, it's like you see this, it's, it's incredible the kind of, when you contrast it, think about it, the level of unity that they have. And yeah, there's issues. But I mean, if you go around the world, there are issues everywhere. So like the, the issues that they struggle with are no different than any other society. It may be better. Um, and so it's just so phenomenal to realize that that, that God, that worked. God created an exile that made them long for brotherhood to undo the sin of baseless hatred. So this passage in Leviticus, God's goal is to transform them. They, re they refused to serve God in plenty, so God took away all of that prosperity so that they would remember that the whole reason they were there was to serve God. And their circumstances didn't matter. And when they served God with nothing, then God brought them back and gave them prosperity again. And that was his promise. He said, for their sake, I'll remember the covenant of their ancestors, um, that I might be their God. Right, because that was the goal. Yeah, 42, 26, 26. And actually, that uh, second, uh, second uh, diaspora is actually in verse 38. You become lost, and, and the inspired version here says, from each other, scattered among the nations, and your enemies' land will consume you. So it's, it's, it was more than, I mean, we read this passage just like the end of Deuteronomy. It's, it, I mean, it says people with fierce confidence. We know it's the Babylonians, so we know that that's what it's talking about. But here it talks about that, 
and it was overlaid with Deuteronomy. We were talking about the Babylonian captivity. It, at the end, it goes into it goes into this uh, diaspora, where this is the time that it's actually speaking out. Mm-hmm. And then it says, "But I will take you, and wherever you go, I'll be with you, and you will always be my people, and I will always be your God." Right, right. And it's it's miraculous. Another explanation. I mean. Um, Rabbi, uh, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said in his um, one of the speeches he gave one time the Jewish people are the only ones that got exiled, scattered and came back to create a nation again there's nobody else I mean there are still Incans and Mayans and whatever else but they're not a people they're assimilated loners that happen to have small communities or whatever but they're not, there's no nation of these native tribes anymore um, oh, there are lots of examples. I mean, think about it. entire countries have been recreated, and they are still today. You see, it like in Syria and Iraq and whatnot, they're fighting each other like crazy. But the original countries aren't there. Well, it's also the only people that's been dispersed. whose language was maintained. Right. Although interestingly enough, only through religious focus, uh-huh. which is really fascinating, because the the conversational conver- conversational. Hebrew was gone. They didn't use it. Right. Um, they had to recreate it. But what's amazing is uh, is that it was through their faith, it was through the scriptures right. that are written in Hebrew and yeah. their prayers that are written in Hebrew that they clung to that 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 sense of language. Um, as the uh, this tradition says, um, the Jews don't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath keeps the Jews. Right. It's like the uh, that that gave a sense of consistency. And every time the Jews tried to really assimilate in their culture, that culture ultimately rejected them. Um, it was disgusting and foolish on the part of that culture, but <laughs> nonetheless, um, I think that, you know, again, what was the purpose of the exile? The purpose of the exile was to bring them back. Um, at the end, it's interesting that after all of that passage, we get through all of this stuff, all this depressing, sad stuff, the purpose being God wants you to serve him. The last chapter in Leviticus is literally about being sold to God. Um, the last chapter has to do with when you want to make a, uh, a consecration to God of yourself or of some property, this is how much that's worth. Um, and it's interesting that that's the way that it ends. It's kind of, it feels sort of a weird, it's a weird ending, quite frankly, um, having read, because the rest of Leviticus is so rule-based, then you get this one chapter in Bokotai that's so um, prophetic, narrative, warning, whatever you want to call it. There's so much pathos in this, this chapter, so much emotion. Um, and we come off with this, you know, incredibly intense chapter, and then it's like, and here are a bunch of consistent rules. You should do this, and this is worth this. And if it, the person is 65 years old, they're worth this much. And if they're 20 years old, they're worth this much. And it's like, whoa, okay. It's like, it's kind of like getting to the, uh, the end of the movie, and it's like the credits rolled, and there's no music. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, the, well, the credits roll, and there's no plug in at the end, yeah. the next version. Like, that's how it ends? But there's a reason for this. Because this chapter is about what? It's about God owning it. Because that was what the whole book was about. The whole book was God saying, I own it all. I own you. I own your land. I own everything I gave you. Therefore, you must serve me. And uh, at the end of the, of the, of the book, he talks about... Um, things that can't be redeemed. Talks about people who are condemned to death that can't be redeemed. Talks about the tithe, which can't be redeemed. 
This really belongs to God. Yes, sir. Uh, there's, a, there's a little thing at the end of uh, hours that uh, I thought was pretty cool. I'm just going to read it because I can't, I can't summarize it anyway. Um, since the beginning is wedged in the end, and the end in the beginning, which is from the uh, uh, Talmud, we find that the book of Akra, which begins with the subject of animal sacrifices, first five chapters are all about those, right? Ends with the same topic, the firstborn sacrifice and animal times. A key distinction between these two types of sacrifice is that the firstborn are selected by God. Hmm. Whereas the animal times were selected by man. You put up the rod and the tenth one is the one, right? Thus, by ending the book of Ayikra with the subject of animal times, the Torah stresses to us the importance of man's initiative in divine service. And this is hmm. why I thought it was hmm. God made us in a way that a person prefers a measure of his own produce to nine measures of his fellows. Mm -hmm. I, I want to I I grow my own stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The inner reason for this is so that man can be truly immersed in his own divine service. Rather than constantly rely on inspiration from above or from a preacher, thus fulfilling God's intention that the whole world be made holy through the efforts of man. Right, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier about yeah. inscribing you. Yeah, um, the righteous man. The righteous man, but the right. righteous man does more than change himself. Yeah, he changes the world. Changes the, the world. The whole um, tacoon. But I just, I, I felt like the, you know, the visible representation of the church, with folks going to the church building, and you got to hear the guy, right, or the gal now, and you know that that's that's the mindset. I've, I got to go get fed can't feed myself right nor can I feed my own children I have to be fed by someone else and and then lack of ownership yeah and we, we learn to be able to do it ourselves and to participate with God well it's interesting that you say that because the model that is promoted um, today by some of the churches that are particularly successful that yearn for more stability and not people to fill pews every week um, their model focuses so much more on small groups. Right. They're going, look, this the people coming in being fed, that's great for getting people in the door, but it doesn't mean it doesn't create a community. That's right. You want to create people who will stick around. Or a community that will grow. Grow. You want to create a community who will stick around, a community that will develop each other, that will care about each other. The only way to do that is to give them ownership, to send them off into their own homes and say, You go teach everybody. Right. You teach each other. Because otherwise then you don't it's not yours, and it won't matter. And that's what we're talking about at the beginning. We're talking about our earlier talking about the now nationhood. It's like if it's not yours, you don't care. But when you've invested in it and you own a piece of it, now it really matters to you. Um, and that was kind of uh, that. That is definitely part of God's goal here: that to create that sense of ownership in our own lives, uh, mitzvot, doing them. That's one reason why. Um, uh, I think I love that, that quote from David and it strikes me so much um, especially when sometimes it's so easy to rely on something someone else gives you but uh, David says I will not make sacrifice that costs me nothing sometimes you need to spend your own money yeah. it doesn't, it's not the point it's not the sacrifice the point is you sacrificing for God personally Um, yeah, final final comments. I want to read the very last verse here because we're at the end of the book. But first, if there's any other final comments, 
the first was designed to have an interesting thing about the ratio back in the, the beginning of this chapter, chapter 26, about the five shall chase a hundred, oh, yeah. and uh, a hundred will chase 10,000, and they were pointing out that like, the first ratio is one to 20, right. the next one's one to a hundred, how does that work? And so they quote Rashi, which I pulled up, because it it's just very succinct, but he says, you cannot compare a few who do the Torah to many who That's do right. the Torah. Bang. Because it's way greater than the it's sum right. of the parts. That's exactly right. right. That's it's great. exponential. Yeah. yeah. That's, That's very cool. That's very cool. I like that very much. Um, so, so we yes. got the uh, traditional ending here as so, you finish this verse. The end of the verse, the last verse in the book, which is a great, great way to summarize the entire book of Leviticus, which is a long list of commandments that God's given us um, that we are supposed to keep because he's God. And the last verse says, these are the commandments that an I commanded Moses to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. We end by saying, Chazak, Chazak, Benitz, Chazak. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Amen. Dad, if you would close us in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God and that you have given us uh, commandments for life. Thank you that your commandments uh, restore us and uh, give us vitality give us a hope. Father, pray that you might uh, continue to bless us as we keep them. And Father, for those that uh, we love who aren't, Father, we ask that you might uh, draw them to you, uh, even through the uh, hardships you describe in this passage. Father, we ask that you might bring them back to you so that we all may uh, dwell in community together. And thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good Shabbos, Brock. <laughs>